Um, this morning we're continuing our study of the book of James, which we started last fall. We're entering into the last chapter. There will be a number of sermons taking us up to Palm Sunday from this chapter. Today we're going to go through verse 6. So James 5, 1, 6, let's stand for the reading of God's holy word. James writes, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Lord, we are constantly in need of your word and Holy Spirit in need of your illumination, your guidance. So do that now, which only you can do. Help us to see things in this text which we have never seen or things that we've forgotten. And help us to delight in what it means to be saved by your grace and for your glory. Lord, do a work that only you can do in making us trust in you alone, even as we were singing a moment ago. Please, Lord, make, make that happen, for only you can do that work. We pray that you would. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow, James, how do you like it? It's pretty intense. Well, you rich. It's very strong. We're rich. Even the poorest in our midst is rich compared to the rest of the world. And James' words weep. How for the miseries that are coming upon you? The look forward to a day of judgment. It's very, very strong. But why is it here? Today's Valentine's Day. If you did not know that, and you have a significant other who did, I'm sorry. It's Valentine's Day, and I don't remember all the things that I have given my wife on Valentine's Day. It's hard to remember. Sometimes I'm sure it was flowers or chocolate, but I do remember the, the gift I gave her 25 years ago. It was three months before we were to get married. We got married May 18th, essentially the same weekend, around the same time this church started. And I bought Christina what I, I knew she'd wanted. It was a puppy. And it was a little miniature schnauzer, cute dog named Whitney. And when she opened up the, the little box that Whitney was in, she just, I mean, she did what you expect. She was overwhelmed with joy. We were still three months from getting married, but I assured her that I would train the dog, walk the dog, clean up after the dog. By the time we were wedded, that dog would be in great shape, and, and she was. We loved that dog. We had that dog for a little over 12 years. We moved to Dallas in 2003, and at that point, Whitney was getting old, and I knew that she probably didn't have much life left in her. 
You could just sense that something inside her was corroding. So I asked a good friend for a recommendation of a vet. For a number of years in college, I worked for a vet hospital. So what I said to my friend was, I don't need a vet that's gonna try to do anything heroic. I don't need a big bill. I just need a vet that can put her down because I know she's, she's dying. And I know it's tender. Many of you have lived that experience. So I found a vet and I took my little dog over there after all of our children, we had three at the time, said their goodbyes, lots of tears. And then Whitney and I went on this last journey to this vet hospital. I walked in and I met the vet who I liked very much. He's, he was a believer. He began to do the exam on Whitney. And as he checked her, he said, yeah, her heart is full of fluid. Her lungs are very, very full as well. He said, she, she might live a few more weeks. I said, let's go ahead and, and move forward. So he did. And we walked to the back into one of the exam rooms and he pulled out the medicine that he would inject in her vein. And I asked him, I said, is it possible that I could be with you? And is it okay if I clamp the vein? I knew how to do that because I'd done it many times. And all that means is you're essentially holding on to their front leg and just twisting a little bit so there's a vein for him to inject. He said, sure. So he did. And then she just began to be very peaceful, just essentially going to sleep. After a couple minutes, he said, I'm going to go ahead and give her some more and that should do it. I said, okay. So I clamped the vein once again, and then he injected and, and emptied the valve fully into her, he thought. When he injected it fully, I said, doc, that was my finger. <laughs> yeah, you guys had a better reaction than the last hour. Um, so all the way in, this finger right here, he poked me. I said, doc, that's my finger. He said, oh. I said, what does that mean? <laughs> he said, I, I don't know. This has never happened. I said, okay, well, what, what do you think I should do? And he said, well, I'll tell you what, what are you feeling right now? I said, nothing. You know, it's nothing. He goes, well, it's going to numb everything. It's the same stuff we, we give people when they go into surgery to put them to sleep. Um, Mark, if it goes up to your neck, you need to go to the hospital. So I said, well, okay, and I thought, well, I'm new to Dallas, which hospital would I go to? I knew I wasn't gonna call my friend who had referred me to this vet, but I, <laughs> I, I moved on. I called my wife. Now you have to understand something about me. I thought it was somewhat serious, but I also loved it, knowing this is gonna be a great story for someday. The pain began to move up my arm, or not the pain, the numbness up my arm hit the elbow, 10 minutes later it's at the bicep, and it's climbing. So I decided to call my wife, Christina, I'm on the way home, you won't believe what happened. And she's like, Mark, what about Whitney? Oh, Whitney is no longer with us. But something happened, what happened? The doctor gave me her shot. I can't feel my arm. My wife panicked. She said, go to the hospital right now. I said, no, no, we'll just wait and see what happens. And it did, it went up to about right here. I could feel nothing. And I'm driving the car with the cell phone here. You know, this is just, and I said, it's starting to feel normal again. And slowly, literally, just minute by minute, I got all the feeling back. You know, it's a funny story. It's a funny story of Valentine's Day, but there's something in this story that's really significant. And it has to do with how we can go numb to things which are very important not to go numb to. And this is one of them. You're, we're a rich church with lots of people who have wealth 
And again, because of where we live in America, we're still, even our poorest are still in some ways way above. There's poverty all around us, you know that. I'm not making light of that. But one of the things that can happen to us when we come to a book like James and we see the passage that's about to be read and preached on, we begin to think, okay, I kind of know what's coming. There's going to be a rebuke about wealth. I'm going to be convicted a little bit. Maybe I'll do something about it in terms of generosity. But I kind of know what's coming. What happens is we, we begin to go, grow numb to the reality of what this text could mean for us. And just like I, I couldn't grip anything, we're tempted to feel like we're not gripping on to wealth or wealth not really gripping onto us. And I want to, I want to tell you, it, the temptation for that to happen, for us to continue to cling to wealth or wealth to cling to us is very, very real and very dangerous. And therefore, it's really important for us not to go numb to these words. It's very important because there's only one ultimate treasure. There's only one treasure that doesn't corrode. But wealth promises itself as, in some ways, an imperishable treasure. And I'll tell you why I think that's true in a minute. But I want you to note something I think is very interesting about this passage. And, and, and immediately you're going to feel like maybe you're off the hook. That's not the case. But look with me again at verse 1. James says, Come now, you rich. Now many commentators believe that at this moment in this, this letter, that James is no longer talking directly to Christians. And the reason is because throughout the letter he's been talking to Christians through the title brothers. He's been referring to them as this, this brotherhood. And that means that all men, women who are of the faith. And then suddenly James moves towards, come now, you rich. And many believe that he was talking to, to rich landowners who in some ways probably were persecuting the church and that the lessons are, are, are really moving towards them, you rich. Now, I want you to be careful, not right now to say, I don't have to listen then. Because the truth is, the word is here. And the word of God, we're told, is all breathed by God. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So even if this is meant just for specifically the rich, there is an overflow that comes to all. And so what James is, do is doing here for us, as well as rich non-believers, he's, he's showing a test, he's giving a warning, and he's offering instruction. First, because James is really about a test, James is saying from the beginning to the end, what is inside you is going to come out. So if you would say you're a believer and you're wealthy and you are using your wealth much like the rich in this passage, it's very possible that you're not really a believer. It's really possible that you have maybe even said the right things, but your faith, what's inside you will be revealed in your works, not perfectly, but there will be a sign that God has done something in you that is changing the way you're doing everything, okay? That's the test. So it's possible that there were some who were not believers who were listening to this, and it's possible there were some who were believers who heard this, and some who thought they were believers but really weren't who heard this, so there's a test. James says in the passage that their wealth will essentially testify against them. You know, the truth is, your wealth as a Christian 
can also testify for you. One of the signs that you belong to Jesus can be a way in which you use your wealth in, in a very generous way to meet the needs of people and to spread the gospel. So it's a test. The second thing, though, that we need to pay attention to is that there is a strong warning here. And I'm going to spend the majority of my time talking about that in a minute. There's a strong warning to what wealth is not able to do. And therefore, there's a great instruction. So I want to approach this a little bit differently this morning. And I think it's instructive. When you're reading a passage, just in your own Bible study, you're reflecting on it. We, we often move way too fast. Just as people, we move too fast. We don't ask that many questions. We check off a list that says, I got through my New Testament reading today and we're done. If you've been a follower of Jesus a long time, I want to encourage you, slow down your reading. Look at all that's taking place in a passage and begin to ask questions of the text, even of those that might be the enemy or villains of the text. And what will happen is incredible insight can be given to you from the Holy Spirit. For example, the rich, they behave very badly in this passage. The warnings that's coming against them is very clear and very strong. It's easy to stop there and say, well, they better be warned and be careful. But if you pause for a moment and you begin to see the world from their viewpoint, a lot might happen in terms of how you understand what James is after. For example, just the question, why would the rich treat their laborers so poorly? Why would the rich store up for themselves treasures on earth and fatten themselves even in the day of coming judgment? If we will spend time asking those why questions, you suddenly get a bigger picture of what's taking place. So I want to begin by doing that. Why? Why would the rich treat people this way? Why would they have such a poor view of wealth? The wrong view, a corroded view. Well, here's the first point. Because everything we know corrodes. Everything. Everything corrodes this side of heaven. Let's think about it for a moment. When Adam and Eve were created, they were in a garden that was perfect. When sin entered... When Eve and Adam ate the fruit, a corrosion began because they disobeyed God. The corrosion was against them and God. Their relationship had corroded. The corrosion was seen in the way in which they related to one another. They no longer had this perfect relationship. They immediately hid from one another, experiencing the corrosion called shame and guilt and fear. The corrosion in their own children as one murders the other and the dysfunction of these families, which is weaved all the way through Scripture. Corrosion is everywhere. And we hate corrosion. Even by the sweat of your brow, the curse is given. You will toil the soil. You'll work. Giving birth, there will be the reality of corrosion in that process. So much pain. So corrosion is everywhere. And we know it. Think about the things that you will you will hold today that will corrode. Everything corrodes. And we hate corrosion. If you're into cars and you're interested in buying a, a late model car, you're going to look to see if there's corrosion called rust. You're going to try to examine every part of it. There probably will be corrosion, but is it something that you can manage? 
Relationships corrode. Clothing, which James mentions, corrodes, right? If it doesn't corrode because it's really well made, its fashion sense will corrode. There is some point when that pair of pants or that sweater, which is, was expensive and well-made and has lasted long, will no longer be in style. That style which you were living in has corroded. Now, it might recycle, but it corrodes. Our government corrodes. Our churches corrode. The ultimate church, the big C church, the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. But between now and the time we go to heaven, there's corrosion in churches all the time. People who once said, this is the word of God. Every word of it is the word of God. And churches just like this would never say that now. Some, even if they believed it, wouldn't say it because they don't want to offend. There's a corrosion that's taken place. And there's a corrosion in relationships. Many will celebrate and say sweet things to one another. It's Valentine's Day, but the reality is, because of the fall, there's corrosion that's constantly taking place. Our bodies corrode, don't they? Our minds begin to forget things. Our ears aren't able to hear. Our eyes aren't as sharp. We are corroding, and we hate it. And because we hate it, we are constantly looking for corrosion inhibitors. We're constantly looking for things that will slow down the reality of corrosion. And you know what? It's because inside us there is a longing to be as we were meant to be. There is a longing for a day when we will know no more corrosion. There is a longing in us for that place where there will be no more hunger, no more tears, no more thirst. But until then, the reality of corrosion is all around us, so we're looking for these corrosion inhibitors, those things that will delay that process, or at least delay the appearance of that process. Now, this is, this is important because I believe it relates to the rich and why the rich are pursuing wealth the way they are pursuing it. You see, of all the things that man can offer that give the appearance of being a corrosion inhibitor, of delaying that process, money is the very best thing that man can get. And here's why. If you have wealth, you have access to buy the very best, which means you can buy the things that are less likely to wear out or if they're going to wear out, it'll take longer for them to wear out. But guess what? If you have wealth, you then have the ability to replace that thing that was the very best. And you can continue to replace that as long as you have enough wealth to do so. Does that make sense? When our bodies begin to experience corruption, the wealthy have access to the world's best doctors. And when a disease is identified that there's not much treatment currently that's offered, but there are trials, stuff sometimes that's even happening in other countries, the wealthy can afford to move in that direction to delay corrosion. I want to be very clear. Wealth is not the problem. 
Money is not the sin. It only becomes the problem when it becomes the treasure. It only becomes a problem when it is seen as salvation. It only becomes a problem when we look at it and say, this is what's going to be ultimate for me. And that's what the rich have done here. Like us, they don't like the experience of corrosion either. You see, corrosion means suffering. We're going to suffer as things corrode, relationally, emotionally, physically. And so what happens is people begin to have corroded views of wealth. And that's what's happened here. I want you to look at how the rich in this passage view wealth. First, it's clear that they view wealth as their own. They don't view wealth as if this is something that God has given them that they are to steward. They're storing up their treasures. So the first issue, the first poor understanding of wealth is an issue of ownership. These rich see this, this wealth as theirs. Therefore, because it's theirs, they've earned it. They can do whatever they want with it. Christians, we can be tempted to think the same way, can't we? The second issue in terms of a poor understanding as wealth is that they overestimate they overestimate the value of their wealth. In other words, when they make it their treasure, they overestimate its value, that somehow it's going to be all that they ultimately need, but it's not. Here, as James reveals, he says that they, the gold and the silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidenced against you. Well, those metal, you know, gold, precious gold, pure gold, it's hard to see a corrosion that would take place there, but not in eternity. It is of no value. So the issue of ownership and the issue of overvaluing wealth has caused them to say, this is our treasure. This is what we're clinging to. This is what ultimately will bring us life. There's another problem with the way they view wealth. And this is so profound they began to move with the consumption of self. And two things happen. James tells us they're self-indulgent. He speaks to those in the passage in verse 5 and says, you have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. In the midst of those who are suffering around you, in the midst of those who have little you have fattened yourself up. And in judgment, those things are actually going to speak against you like a flame on the flesh. Very strong language. They've been self-indulgent. But let me remind you, why wouldn't they be? Why wouldn't they be? This is their corroded view of wealth. It's their corroded view of this corroded, uh, this, this corroded treasure. They're self-indulgent. Secondly, though, they're also corrupt. This makes me angry. And it makes God far more angry. Do you see what they've done? James is very specific. He says, behold, in verse 4, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back, is fraud. And they are crying out against you. 
and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. This is really significant. Here's what it means. These rich people were landowners, and the landowners had day labor. They had people that would come to their fields, that would mow their fields, that would harvest their fields. Those poor people experienced the reality of corrosion every day because their paycheck went from day to day. Some people talk about the reality of having to live paycheck to paycheck. That means sometimes from the 1st to the 15th or the 15th to the end of the month, sometimes monthly, but for these day laborers, it was every day. If they did not receive their day wage, they didn't eat. If they didn't eat, their children didn't eat. And the reality of living in a world of corrosion is in the stomach as their hunger cries out. The rich in this passage who certainly could have afforded to pay the laborers withheld pay. It was fraud. It was corrupt. It's dark. It's dirty. It's evil. It's selfish. But why wouldn't they think that way? They would, why wouldn't they think that way? Because from their perspective, they don't want to see corrosion either. And so the more I have, the more I can get, the more I can delay the reality of corrosion in my life, why wouldn't I care less about people? Because their deepest problem, it's not wealth. It's a corroded understanding of wealth. And it's a corroded understanding of wealth because they have a corroded relationship with God. And that's the warning. They are not interested in thinking about the consequences of the future. They're only thinking about now. And because they have wealth, they have power. So James speaks. And James says that the cries of those that you have been fraudulent with, those that you have refused to pay, they have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And the Lord of hosts will bring judgment. So if you were the rich in this setting, you were a landowner and you heard these words, what might happen? I'm not sure. On one hand, if there was no work by the Holy Spirit happening in your life, you basically would blow James off. But if there was a work of the Holy Spirit in your life happening, you would begin thinking differently about everything. This is amazing. In order for that to happen, a different type of corrosion had to take place. Now, corrosion is, is nothing more than the, the, the very natural process of destruction. Everything corrodes. But as things corrode, there's actually a conversion that's taking place. Metal is being converted, and eventually it moves back to nothing but dust. The same thing is true for us. For any who would ever, ever profess faith in Jesus Christ as the one who's the way, the truth, and the life, there has to be a corrosion that takes place inside you. It's actually a corrosion of self where you begin to see that you can't save yourself. You can't trust in anything material that would. You begin to see that though you may have a lot of wealth, that wealth will do you no good in terms of your entrance into heaven. 
That can't happen unless there's another corrosion taking place where the corroded thoughts of trusting in a corroded treasure begin to open your eyes. And what do they open your eyes to? Not just the foolishness of of bad spending or bad stewardship. They open your eyes to another corrosion. And that is the corrosion of a man named Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was 100% man, 100% God. Jesus Christ is 100% man, 100% God. When Jesus Christ came to this earth, he was born, but he was not corroded with any sin like you and I have inherited. But he was constantly bombarded by a sinful world. And the reality of that corrosion in his life is that his body corroded. When Jesus Christ was moving towards the cross, carrying the big beam, which he could not carry for long, his body collapsed. He couldn't carry it. He put it on another. Another took it for him. As he moves towards the cross, Jesus Christ is laid upon these boards, nails, nails which would one day corrode, go into his wrist and into his feet. He is then hung up to die, and as he's hanging on the cross, his body is corroding. Why? Because sin is gnawing at it. Your sin, my sin, the sin of the entire world is corroding him. And the wrath of his father, which is perfect and just, is being poured out on his son. The wrath that you deserve, that I deserve, the stripes which we deserved, he received. And the corrosion worked to the point of Jesus saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It is finished. The corrosion is finished. And he died. His body was done. His heart stopped beating. It had burst. And he was taken down. And then three days later, the powerful work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit raises Jesus from the dead. And what happens? Death is corroded. And though if, if we outlive the time before Jesus returns, we all will die. All who are in Christ will live forever in eternity with him in a place where there is no more corrosion. There can't be. In a place where we will never experience the suffering that we experience now. But in order for us to believe in Jesus, to believe on Jesus, to, to believe the very things that we have been singing all morning, there has to be a work of the Holy Spirit And it is a work of corrosion. It is a work that corrodes your faulty views of self and your faulty views of wealth. 
as the ultimate treasure. So my question as we end is this. Are you a believer in Jesus? If so, then praise him. Praise him. Praise him for becoming that man of sorrow, for experiencing that corrosion that you might forever live in a place where the corrosion will be no more. Praise him. Use your wealth out of this generous expression of what he has given us. Let your wealth be a testimony to that corroded work in your heart where he's changed you. Not because you think that's what's going to make you earn anymore. That's called legalism. But because out of the flow of joy of what he's done, give. Second question. If you're not a believer, are you rich? And is it your wealth and the wrong view of wealth that's keeping you from saying, I'm not trusting in this anymore. May the Lord be merciful to you even this day to begin that process of corrosion in your own thinking. If you would like to talk about those things with me or one of our other pastors or an elder in our church or the person you came with or are sitting by, we would love nothing more. You know why? Because the truth is we've all at one point in our life had that corroded view. And even now we're still tempted towards it. But he's faithful. He's faithful. Let's pray. Jesus, I would ask that you be gracious and merciful to us as we, we believe your words as you will be. For those who are in you already, I pray that we would delight in what it means to have a Savior who went through all that, that we might live for all eternity. And Lord, for any in our midst who, who can honestly say right now that they don't believe this, I pray that you would quickly strip away the illusion that wealth brings, that illusion of this corrosion inhibitor, and let them see that it will not last. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.